0: Please open your Bible to Matthew 16, Matthew 16. And this morning we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Over the last several chapters of Matthew, we've seen various responses to Jesus. Uh, We have people who receive Jesus, They, they begin to see Him as the Messiah. There are those who don't know who He is and wonder if maybe He is the Messiah. And then there are those who reject who He is and seek to stop Him in His ministry. Now, one of the things that Matthew's been bringing out more and more is this distinction between those who accept Jesus and those who reject Jesus. And we've consistently, consistently seen that those who reject Jesus, it's kind of surprising who rejects Jesus. It's the religious and the important people that Matthew shows to be rejecting Jesus. Typically, it's the Pharisees and the scribes. We've also seen that those who accept Jesus, that's also surprising. It's unexpected. They are the outcasts. They are those who are often unimportant. And we've seen that when these people come to Jesus, they have one thing that makes all the difference. And that thing is faith. And we saw this just last week as, as Larry uh, preached from Matthew 15, and we saw this Canaanite woman, woman who approaches Jesus asking for her daughter to be healed. And this woman that Jesus, as a Jewish man, would ordinarily have nothing to do with whatsoever, she comes to him in faith, And if, you're, if your Bible is open to Matthew 16, you can just look a couple paragraphs before at verse 28. And Jesus answers this woman, O oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And Matthew says that her daughter was healed instantly. Faith makes all the difference. Now the text that we come to this morning continues to highlight the importance of Faith. Our text opens with the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to test Jesus. And Matthew's original readers, they would have been shocked reading what happens here because the Pharisees and the Sadducees would never do anything together. Now we read this and we just think, yeah, of course, I mean, it's the religious guys. They would have read this and said, what? The Pharisees and the Sadducees? One commentator said, it would be like the Israeli national soccer team getting together with the Iranian team to eat pig's feet while they cheer for the U.S. in the World Cup. That's what this is like, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I'll explain a bit. in a bit their differences, but before we read our text, I wanted you to get a sense of the surprising open to our text. This group of men has joined together for one purpose, and that's to oppose Jesus. They come to embarrass him. They plot to prove that he is not who he says he is. And our text will focus on the unbelief of these leaders, the danger of their teaching, and the kindness of So let's look together at God's Word, His inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient Word for us. This is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, so listen up. Matthew 16, verses 1 through 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test Him, they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to receive your word, to understand your word, to love your word, to live by your word? Would you remove any hindrance, any obstacle that exists in our hearts that we might behold wondrous things out of your law this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, now we're going to walk through our text in, in three movements, three main points. The first is this, the problem of unbelief. The problem of unbelief. Our text opens with this confrontation, this testing. The Pharisees and Sadducees come to test Jesus. Now, who the heck are these guys? Well, the Pharisees, they were like the holy rollers, the holy club. They thought revival would come to Israel through strict obedience to the five books of Moses and to all the teaching of rabbis based on those five books. These people were very popular with the Jewish people. Uh, they, were the, they would have been seen as kind of the super spiritual, the super serious. They were all about religion and obedience and holiness. That's, that's what these guys were all about. Now, in contrast, the Sadducees, they were like the well-connected. They were the, the rationalistic and the savvy. They were engaged with the culture of their day. They knew how to win friends and influence people. They were politically connected and looked for material prosperity and worldly power. And because they were so much about the world, these are religious leaders, but they were so much about the world that one of their core beliefs was that there was no resurrection. So the Pharisees held that there was a resurrection. The Sadducees said there is no resurrection. We can simplify it by saying that the difference between these two religious groups is that the Pharisees were all about the law, While the Sadducees were all about this world. But now, these groups, who didn't agree on much, are working together against Jesus. And they come with a a request. But it's an insincere request. They say, show us a sign from heaven. Now consider that these men and others from their groups, they've seen many signs. Many miracles already performed by Jesus. But these were not enough for them. They asked for something more. Give us something bigger, something better. Give us a sign from heaven. Now maybe they were thinking of manna raining down from heaven. Or maybe they were thinking of of the sun stopping for Joshua. Or maybe even fire coming down from heaven for Elijah. I mean, they knew all these things, and they're thinking maybe Jesus do one of these things. But regardless of what they were thinking, Matthew makes it clear that there was nothing that Jesus would have done, or could have done, that would have been enough for these men. Their purpose was not to gather evidence, but to put Jesus to the test. And this is what we see in Matthew 16.1. It says, they came to test Jesus. Now the word that's used for test here is the same word that's used in Matthew 4. And if you remember what happens in Matthew 4, that's when Satan comes to tempt, to test Jesus. This is not a test, again, to gather information. Their problem is not that they have a lack of evidence... They don't need just one more sign. Jesus, just do one more thing and then we'll believe. No, they've seen the miracles themselves. Their problem is not something that rests outside. It's something that rests inside of them. Their problem is unbelief. And the problem with unbelief is that it comes from our hearts and it blinds us. It's the hearts of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that keep them from seeing and knowing and following Jesus Christ. these religious leaders, they've, they've come to Jesus, the Messiah, and essentially said, Hey, we don't care about all that you've done already. All of your other signs are not enough. We want to see you do what we tell you to do. This is Jesus, who has come as the Messiah, the anointed one. This is the guy that they've been waiting for. And they're saying, No, you do what we tell you to do. This is the way of unbelief. For those walking in the blindness of unbelief, there is never enough. What God has said and done is never enough. There's always the asking for more. Another sign. Another answer. Another gift. Another word. But the problem is not evidence. The problem is not a lack of words. The problem is with unbelief in the heart. It's a hard heart that rejects the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus then points them to the error of their ways. Look at verse 2. He says, he answers them and says, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus' point here is clear. In that region, it was common knowledge that one could see the sky, see what the sunset or the sunrise was doing, and predict the weather with some accuracy. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they can do this. But even though they can do this, they cannot see what's right in front of them. Jesus talks about the signs of the times. And these signs are not predictions about future events, but they're about what's already right there in front of them, what's there for all to see. God has showed up. He is standing in front of them in the person of Jesus. But these so-called religious leaders don't even comprehend what is happening right in front of them. So Jesus is saying, you have all this knowledge, all this skill, but the very thing you're supposed to be experts in, you haven't got a clue. It's like those, uh, those memes that you've maybe seen, where it's like you had one job. You had one job and you couldn't do that right. They're supposed to be the religious experts, and they can't even do that right. He tells them that the one sign they will get is the sign of Jonah. Now what does that mean, the sign of Jonah. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they knew well Jonah's story. He didn't perform any miracles or signs, but in a sense, his life was the sign. It was a sign that pointed ahead to the man standing right in front of them. Jonah was thrown into the water. And why was he thrown in the water? He was thrown into the water to save the men on the boat. So he was thrown into what was supposed to be his death, but he was swallowed up by a great fish. And he sat in the belly of that fish for three nights. And on the third day, that fish spat him out on the shore. The man who seemed so dead was alive. And just as all this happened to Jonah, it points to what is to happen to Jesus. Like Jonah, he will be a sacrifice for the people. Like Jonah, he will emerge from the grave after three days. You see, Jesus uses Jonah to say that death and resurrection are central to the gospel. Which is ironic because of what the Pharisees and Sadducees were all about. The Pharisees at this point, they're all about the death of Jesus. That's what they're setting out to do. They want to see Jesus killed. They had no idea that this was indeed where Jesus intended to go. They had no idea that death was no match for Jesus. And the Sadducees, on the, other, on the flip side, they were those who rejected the very idea of resurrection. Resurrection. But Jesus says that the sign you've been given is all about resurrection. Jesus comes to show His power over death, to show His power of resurrection, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees are blind to it. So Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. There are people who have been unfaithful to the God they profess to follow. Not only have they been unfaithful, but they set out to test to provoke God. But consider the the knowledge that they had of this God. These were not dumb men. They were not unschooled. They had accumulated an impressive amount of knowledge and they were steadfastly committed to learning and gaining more and more knowledge. This was their lives. But all of this knowledge, all of this learning didn't mean anything when it came to the spiritual. Which is, I mean, it's crazy when you think about it. Yes, what they were learning was about God. They studied His words. They endeavored to obey these words, but they were spiritually blind. They could not see what really mattered. They could not see the forest for the trees. Now, there's a sobering lesson lesson for us in this. And it's this. We can't put our confidence in what we know. And especially the kids here, I want you, you to hear this. You might think you know your Bible backward and forward. You might know all of the answers to all of the catechism questions, but no amount of this knowledge will save you. You may have all of this knowledge and still be blind. What saves us, the only place we can put our trust, is not in what we know, but is in who we know. Knowledge doesn't save. Jesus saves. The sign from heaven the Pharisees and Sadducees called out for was standing right there in front of them, in the person of Jesus. And He's here in front of us today in His Word. We don't need more evidence. We don't need another sign. We don't need new words. What we need is spirit-worked faith. And sadly, look where, where unbelief ends. Look where it leads. Look at the end of verse 4. It says that Jesus left them and departed. Could more devastating words be uttered? The Messiah that they have been waiting for, that they've been looking for, their only hope for salvation leaves them and departs. This is the problem of unbelief. It comes from the heart and blinds us to the reality of who Jesus is. It always seeks for something else, something more. But all that we need has already been revealed in Jesus. And what we need is the Spirit to give us new hearts, soft hearts, Receive and believe all that God has revealed in His word. So Jesus' departure leads us to our next point. that's this: the, the danger of false teaching. Number two, the danger of false teaching. And we come to verses five through seven, a somewhat humorous scene plays out. Jesus and the disciples, they get back in the boat and into a boat to head to the other side of the lake. But we are quickly alerted to a problem: The disciples forgot bread. Now, think back. I mean, if you're familiar with Matthew, you'll you'll remember these things. But think back for a minute at at the preceding chapters. When Jesus was teaching in Matthew 14, the disciples found themselves amidst this great crowd, thousands of people, in a desolate place, and they didn't have enough food for everyone. Then, as we read just last week at the end of Matthew 15, Jesus is with another big crowd that has been with him for three days with nothing to eat. And there's been all this conversation about bread and about food and having enough. You would, have, you would think that the disciples, as they're getting on the boat, somebody would have checked to see, did anybody bring food? Do we have anything? Any bread? But no, no, they forgot to bring bread. And then Jesus speaks in verse 6, and it seems like he says something about bread. Verse 6 says, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, leaven is kind of like a sourdough starter. It's, like a, it's a bit of last week's bread dough that you save and you put, roll into the new dough, and it will uh, cause the whole of it to rise. It's like yeast. So here are the disciples, and they've forgotten bread. And Jesus tells them to stay away from the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, I mean, they're freaking out. They're like, what? What? They're clearly confused. Look at verse 7. It says, And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. (laughs) Now the disciples think Jesus' comment is about them. They think he is rebuking them because they forgot bread. And so it's like, but don't get it from the Pharisees and Sadducees. I know you forgot it, but don't get it from them. But they completely missed Jesus' point. Jesus' purpose is to warn them about the danger of false teaching. And here is that danger. It might seem small and insignificant, but it is pervasive. This teaching is pervasive in its influence. It's far-reaching in its effect. I like to think of leaven like a drop of food coloring. It's a little bit more relevant to me in my season of life. Drop, it, uh, drop a food coloring into a clear glass of water, and what happens to that water? It doesn't take very long, it, but it changes color. Exactly right. That water changes color just a little bit. Or I'll make pancakes every Saturday morning for the kids. And every once in a while, I don't do this as much anymore as they get older. Every once in a while, like St. Patrick's Day or something, we'll make green pancakes. And I'm always amazed at how little food coloring it takes to change the color of the whole batch of dough. That was a batch of dough. That doesn't really work. But you know what I'm saying. Batch of pancakes. Its effect is pervasive. And this is what false teaching is like. Just a little bit affects everything. Everything. Now, what were the Pharisees and the Sadducees teaching? Well, we've already seen that they, they taught really different things. They landed in very different places. The Pharisees taught salvation through obedience, through works. The Sadducees taught salvation through worldly power, through relevance. But neither option can save. Well, what Jesus is really warning against is their unbelief toward his revelation, to who he is, to what he's said. It's a warning against teaching that doesn't accept Jesus for who he is, doesn't accept what he says. That it's, it's a teaching that wants to control Jesus and turn him into the Savior that they want. Not the Savior that he is, but the Savior that they want. And Jesus says, be on guard against this. Watch out. But I don't know about you, but I know for myself that I haven't seen any Pharisees or Sadducees recently. Like, I don't see them out in my neighborhood, in our community, haven't seen them on TV or online. So what is this to us, right? Pharisees and Sadducees, who are the false teachers that we should beware of, that we should watch out for? Well, I'm going to give you a list. No, I'm not, actually. Rather than provide a list of names, uh, which while certainly exciting, would be distracting and is changing all the time, I want to give you a list of characteristics of false teachers. All right, so the danger of false teaching, characteristics of false teachers. And I'm going to borrow this list from a guy named Thomas Brooks. And Thomas Brooks was a British pastor in the 1600s. And he has this little work called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in that, he he provides this list of seven characteristics of false teachers. And I just want to go through them quickly. I'll spend like just five minutes on each one. (laughs) First... False teachers work to please men. That's the first thing Brooks says. False teachers work to please men. They say things that people want to hear. They don't want to offend. They just want people to be happy and to like them. They are men pleasers. That's the first characteristic. Second, false teachers work to destroy others, especially the church. They throw dirt on faithful ministers and ministries. They spread ideas and stories that are meant to discredit and bring shame to good ministers of the gospel. And, and bear in mind, this guy is writing this 450 years ago. Not much has changed in the church, sadly. That's the second. They work to destroy others. Third, false teachers love the new and novel. They love to proclaim new ideas that no one else has ever taught. And this is one of the reasons why we are committed to proclaiming the old, old story again and again and again. Even though the heresy that they proclaim, this new and novel, has been taught again and again for the last thousand years, theirs is a revolutionary idea. Theirs is an idea that will finally get the church on the right side of history. That's what false teachers do. They love the new and the novel. Fourth, false teachers major on the minors. So they make mountains out of molehills. Theirs is a ministry that doesn't focus on that which is most important, so the gospel and faith and repentance, and puts that focus someplace else. Fifth, false teachers look and sound good. They work to be impressive. Now this might be in their winsomeness or their ability to tell a story. It might be in their attractiveness or coolness or relevance. Brooks writes this, he says, They know sugared poison goes down sweetly. So they wrap up their pernicious, soul-killing pills in gold. Sixth characteristic, false teachers care more about their platform than your heart. They do not minister to see you grow, but to see their ministry grow, their platform grow. They aim for bigger numbers, not changed lives. Again, Thomas Brooks writing this 450 years ago. Seventh and finally, Brooks says that false teachers use ministry for financial gain. They love money and use ministry to gain more of it. So to them, the work of ministry, it's a business for their own profit. Brooks writes this, he says, They eye your goods more than your good, and mind more the serving of themselves than the saving of your souls. Seven characteristics of false teachers. Now, false teachers, they don't come to us with devil's horns and pitchforks. They come to us packaged attractively. Some may be drawn to that which seems more intellectual. Others may be drawn to that which seems more current, more relevant. Still others may be drawn to that which seems more authentic, more real. But whatever pull you may feel, false teachers come in all shapes and sizes through all kinds of mediums, but their messages like leaven, can have pervasive, widespread, and destructive effects on us. And brothers and sisters, we would do well to consider the various things that we take in day after day, week after week. The things that we listen to and read in light of these seven characteristics. Perhaps it's voices you hear and see scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or any other social media. Perhaps it's a podcast you listen to a neighbor or relative you talk to, maybe it's a blog or a book you read or a website you visit. We live in an age where we have unprecedented access to information. No one throughout human history has, has, has had access to as much information as we have. And this is a tremendous gift, a tremendous gift, but it brings with it tremendous danger. All of this information access also means that we have more access to false teachers than ever before. So watch Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Sadducees, because it's always just a click away. We live in a world that is always seeking to undermine the Word of God, that is seeking to destroy the church of Christ. And this could be an adding or in taking away from the gospel, but either sees Jesus as not all that we need. One commentator says, he says, the spiritually immature people always want more of the wrong thing. But thanks be to God. We have all we need in Jesus. And so we turn third and finally to Him and to His kindness. Third, the kindness of Jesus. This is the antidote to false teaching. Look again, picking up in verse 7. And they began discussing among themselves, the disciples saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith. Now hold there. The disciples clearly misunderstand Jesus. They thought their biggest problem was forgetting bread. To them, that was the important thing. But rather than saying, Jesus could have said, Come on, you idiots! Jesus. Jesus says that their biggest problem is not a lack of bread, but their small faith. Faith is the important thing to Jesus. And we need to remember something about faith. Faith has power, not because of, where it, of, of what it is, but because of where it looks. That's where faith's power comes from. Faith in the wrong thing is worthless. I could go to a pond by my house across the street and I could have faith. I could have faith that I can walk on that pond. But as soon as I take a step out on that water, that water is not going to hold me up. It doesn't matter how much faith I have. But faith in the right thing changes everything. So while disciples only have little faith, they do have some faith. Where the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were completely blind in their unbelief, the disciples seemed to be only half blind. And so, in his kindness, Jesus corrects them gently. He doesn't say, Come on, you idiots! He says, Oh, you of little faith. The disciples' problem is that in their small faith, they have forgotten who is with them. And essentially, this is what Jesus gently points out. Look at verses 8-10. through 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Jesus brings to their mind who he is and what he has done. He says, hey, remember last week when we were in that desolate place with those thousands of people who were all hungry and you were worried about them making sure we dismissed them so they can go go get something to eat and I took those two fish and those five loaves of bread and I fed them all do you remember that? but not only that do you remember how afterwards you went around with these big baskets and you gathered leftovers? yeah, like that's how sufficient my grace is that's how abundant my provision is remember that? How many baskets you gathered? Twelve baskets or seven baskets. that was five thousand. seven baskets they gathered. No, twelve, it was twelve with the five thousand. I got it. It's coming together. Well, what's interesting? it just says inside, just says inside, there's a lot of baskets. Jesus does the same thing, he says with the 4, thousand. And again, not he doesn't just provide for their needs so that everybody had enough. He provides so much that there's leftovers. But what I found fascinating as I studied this more, so twelve, twelve baskets with the 7,000, 5,000, 7 baskets with the 4,000. 12 and 7 are significant numbers in Scripture. When Jesus fed the 5,000, this was a predominantly Jewish crowd that he would have been feeding. And there are 12 baskets of leftovers. 12 representing, really, 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus in his provision is enough for all of his people. Then when he feeds these 4,000, this 4,000 was predominantly a Gentile crowd. And seven in Scripture, there were seven baskets of leftovers afterwards. Jesus' power isn't waning. I think Jesus intends to make a point. Seven baskets represent completion, fullness, fulfillment of promise. So as the disciples gather these seven baskets, perhaps, I think we can infer, as Jesus says, hey, do you remember how many... He doesn't say, do you remember how I fed all these people? He says, do you remember how many baskets you gathered? As they call to mind the twelve and the seven... You see God's abundant provision and kindness and love in coming to provide for His people, all of His people. Jesus brings to their mind this faithful provision. And the disciples were worried about the 12 of them for getting bread. I think it's also interesting to note that Jesus does point to these leftovers. He makes it about the leftovers. He points to what the disciples experienced in these miracles. They didn't just witness all these people eating. They were reminded that Jesus provided so much for all these people that there were leftovers. Their little faith forgets God's present power. Faith holds on to and remembers God's past provision. As John Calvin has said it, faith cherishes in our hearts the remembrance of the gifts of God. May we do the same. May we cherish in our hearts the remembrance of the gifts of God. When we remember who Jesus is, when we remember what God has done for us in him, not just in physical provision, but so much more in salvation, then why should we fear? Why should we doubt? Why should we worry? Paul writes this in Romans 8. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Look at the kindness of Jesus. Now our passage concludes with Jesus again stating His warning to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This again, it's, it's another evidence of His kindness. He knows that His people are a people prone to wander. They are prone to forget. They are prone to distort truth, prone to demand more. And God comes to us in kindness, in mercy, in the person of Jesus, to not only provide for us, but to protect us from that which comes to destroy. So, brothers and sisters, let us trust in the one who gave himself for us. Let us trust in his kindness to us, come what may. Let us trust in his provision for us in the face of every need. Even when nothing makes sense, we hold on to him for he is holding on to us. Yes. Remembering what God has done and promises to do should strengthen should strengthen our faith and free us from all anxiety. Thanks be to God for his word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace shown to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are the greatest treasure of our longing souls. In you is all we have, it's all we need, maybe all we want. Lord, thank you for this warning that you've given us to, to beware of the effects of false teaching, the pervasive effects of false teaching. Thank you for this uh, corrective to flee unbelief and this encouragement to, in faith, look to you, to you alone who can provide for every need and has indeed in Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.